Well, you notice that was a Hatfield duet and not a trio. I was not asked to participate with them, but I'm grateful for them singing that song. What a, what a rich song, and that's what I'm inviting us to do this morning, is to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just this morning, day by day, week by week, year by year, decade after decade for a lifetime to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On that note, I invite you to turn to John chapter 6. As you're turning, I will invite our kids, Children's Church Age, to be dismissed to Children's Church uh, this morning. And as they depart, we're going to dig in. And again, we're coming into John chapter 6, a long chapter, a rich chapter. And we're going to look at verses 51 through 63 this morning. Well, what's for lunch today? Chicken tortilla soup, tacos, burgers, pizza. Yeah, it, it, I'm shooting myself in the foot by starting off a sermon near uh, the lunch hour with that type of food, bringing up options to eat. We're coming into a text where Jesus speaks about eating and drinking in a way that deeply offended his listeners. Jesus speaks very directly, very explicitly about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, clearly he doesn't mean it literally. And I want us to look and see how he draws our focus to what we spent our morning singing about, and that is the cross of Christ. So my question I'm asking you this morning is, why should you glory in rather than be scandalized by the message of the cross? So I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll come into John 6, back into verse 51, and read through verse 53. Jesus speaking here says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you our spirit and life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your church this morning that we would glory in the cross, 
I pray that we would not see the cross as optional in the Christian life, but, Lord, as central to the Christian life. I pray for your church today that we would not think we graduate from the cross, but every day we live is lived in light of the cross. Lord, I pray for those who may be listening that have not yet made Jesus Lord of their lives. I pray that today the message of the cross would be preached and your spirit would draw. Father, may your church glory in, not be scandalized by the cross of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now it's possible that Somebody in our congregation could have had a bagel for breakfast, have a sandwich for lunch, have a burger for dinner, and have bread at every meal. Yet there are some people who are cutting down on bread or cutting out bread from their diet for health benefits. Nobody in first century Israel was cutting out bread. To the contrary, bread was central to their diet. Now in John chapter 6, we've talked a lot about bread for legitimate reasons. We have seen that Jesus began this chapter miraculously feeding people with a small amount of bread and a small amount of fish. And then he has used bread as a symbol for himself. Last week we concluded with, and today we begin with, verse 51. And look what he says at the end of that verse. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I don't want you to miss how shocking that statement is, church. Jesus took the main staple of his original audience's diet and says, the greatest bread ever given is his flesh. And even that word flesh is a strong word. Jesus wanted to grab attention. Now, we don't have to wonder... How did his audience feel about him saying this? It shocked the audience. You see in the very next verse that the Jews disputed about this. That is not a mild, unemotional discussion. They're angry. They're arguing about what it means. And they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they don't get it at all. And that's been consistent with how they responded to the way Jesus has used bread so far but I want you to see he goes further here by saying his flesh is the bread that gives life a very bold statement so when they raise their question there in verse 52 how can this man give us his flesh to eat we might expect Jesus to back off that statement a little bit we might think well maybe he'll tame down what he says make it more pleasant to their ears far from it he doubles down by painting an even more graphic picture for them Jesus explanation in verses 50 through uh, 53 through 58 really pushes the visual envelope past what that audience was comfortable with and quite honestly past what many people today are comfortable with so he begins, truly, truly, that's the fourth time he does that in this teaching, in this chapter. So we've said this is like texting in all caps or something. Like it's, it's stand out saying, uh, pay attention to what 
comes next. We talk about it being bold and underlined. Like he, he wants people to really pay attention to what is coming next because he doesn't want us to miss as he is going to say over and over. If you look at verse 53 through 58, over and over, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Now, why would Jesus say this in such a striking way? Well, I think we first have to answer, what does he mean when he alludes to his flesh and his blood? Now, I don't think anybody in the crowd thought Jesus was speaking literally about eating his literal body and drinking his physical blood. This is a Jewish audience. You go back all the way to Leviticus chapter 7. Verse 27, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So they, they don't think Jesus is saying, literally eat my flesh, literally drink my blood. So they know it's a metaphor, but their argument seems to stem from the fact that they don't know what to make of his symbolism here. So what does Jesus mean in this crucial teaching where he says, Again and again, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, let's, let's walk backwards a little bit in John's gospel. Let's go back to chapter 1 where Jesus speaks uh, about the flesh, where John is speaking about Jesus coming in the flesh, I should say, in verse 14. So it doesn't say he just took on flesh but became flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, why did the Word become flesh? And again, the speaking of Jesus. Why did he become incarnate? Well, the ultimate reason for him doing so was to go to the cross and pay for our sins. As we move forward in this chapter, in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the reason, the purpose of the word becoming flesh was to take away the sin of the world as the sacrificial lamb who goes to the cross. So his body had to be broken. His blood had to be poured out if any human being is going to be saved. So the main theme of this massively important block of teaching in verses 53 through 58 is that Jesus had to go to the cross. His flesh his body had to be broken on the cross his blood signifies the atonement that was made at calvary so he is pointing this audience and us to a crucified messiah now i want you to think about the cross for a minute you may have a cross necklace on this morning you may have crosses decorating your walls at home when we discussed this text in our staff meeting on tuesday morning karen had a big cross on her shirt now i want you to imagine miss karen got in her delorean time machine from back to the future and she goes back to ad 25 roman empire all right now why that time because this is before Jesus went to the cross. But it's certainly not before crucifixions were taking place in the Roman Empire. 
Roman citizens were terrified by the image of the cross. This is the most brutal, merciless, violent, killing instrument ever constructed by mankind. So I want you to imagine 25 AD, Roman Empire, Miss Karen, walking down the Roman streets, wearing a cross on her shirt. They would think she's insane, right? I mean, this genuinely pleasant-looking woman is wearing this image of a brutal killing instrument down the street. At the end of this sermon, we're going to sing the wonderful cross. At the core of that song is Isaac Watts' hymn, The Wondrous Cross. We, we sang that song not long ago, and I, I was just... I was struck by those two words together. Wonderful cross. Wondrous cross. Those two words together. If you had gone back to that Roman Empire, 25 AD, nobody is singing that. Nobody is saying the cross is wonderful. Nobody thinks the cross is wondrous. I mean, think about, even in modern day terms, if you, if you walked out of a death by lethal injection, nobody's singing, oh, the wonderful chemicals. Nobody's doing that. So I want you to put your mind in, in, in that term. Nobody's singing, oh, the wonderful electric chair. So you, you get where we are in terms of this Violent death that traumatizes the Roman world. In fact, history records that about 100 years before Jesus' incarnation, there was a slave revolt, a revolt in the Roman Empire, and it was put down by Rome. But Rome really wanted to flex its muscles to deter any type of uprisings in the future. So here's what they did. They took a stretch of 130 miles on the road leaving Rome. And they crucified 6,000 people on crosses for that 130-mile stretch. Now, that averages out about 46 crucifixions a mile. So I want you to imagine your ordinary Roman citizen. You live about 10 miles outside the city of Rome. You need to go into Rome and see the blacksmith. That means if you walk those 10 miles you are going by 460 people suffering on crosses. Those images would have been so imprinted on your mind that you would have been devastated. It would be awful to see their suffering, to hear their anguish, to observe their misery. In fact, we, we have an English word. We use the word... If some of you are in pain and it's really bad, you might say it's excruciating. That word is a transliteration, really, of uh, the Latin word. It just means out of the cross. Ex, out, you hear cruce right in the middle, cruciating. So, so that just shows you the pain of the cross. So seeing one of those bodies on the cross would cause you to never want to die that way. You see 460 people on your walk into town and then the same ones on the way back. 
people slaughtered on the cross, you would hate the imagery of the cross. You would certainly not be singing wonderful cross. You might be singing agonizing cross, horrific cross, scandalous cross. So church, how do we sing the wonderful cross? Well, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross. What he did on the cross changed the way that you and I view the cross. What he did on it for us is what makes it wonderful. And here it is. The sinless Jesus took all our sin and he went to the cross and he took God's full punishment, his wrath against it. He paid it all right there on the cross so that sinners like me and you could turn to Jesus Christ in faith, in his work on the cross, and be saved. We've been studying the book of James on Wednesday night together. We spent three weeks uh, talking about how we sin with our mouths. James takes up a lot of scriptural real estate talking about the danger of our words. And really, I don't have to sell you on the fact that you sin with your mouth, right? We all do. I'm not going to ask for your show of hands, but if I did, if I said, how many people have sinned with their mouth in this room this morning? A lot of hands would probably go up, right? Listen, if there's a list, if they're compiling a tally in heaven of the number of times that I have sinned with my mouth, I can tell you it is not in the hundreds. It's probably not in the thousands. It's likely in the millions. And I don't think you're looking at judgment on me because if you tally up your scorecard, you know it's pretty high too, right? And here's the good news. If you're in Christ, the blood of Jesus atoned for every one of those sins with your mouth on the cross. Every white lie, every time you put something down, every wrong word of criticism, every little morsel of gossip that you like sharing, every one of those Jesus took and bore the punishment for. And that's just the sins of our mouth. And then the plethora of other sins, Jesus goes to the cross and if he doesn't, we're still under God's wrath for them. But since he did, since Jesus died and rose again, our sin can be forgiven. So what I think Jesus is talking about by his flesh and blood is his work on the cross. So now we have to ask the next question. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Because that is, that is very direct very graphic type language so what is Jesus doing with him we said he's using a metaphor now, I want you to imagine you're hanging out with someone new to America and they're learning the English language so they're, they're hanging out with you and your friends say you're, you're a younger person and y'all are watching somebody skateboard so the person is doing a trick they fail miserably they fall on their faith on their face and some of his friends said, wow, he really ate it. Now, the person new to English might be surprised at that type of language. That idiom doesn't make sense if we take it literally. So we don't mean that person literally ate blacktop. What do we mean? We mean he 
fell on his face. So there is a metaphor there behind that, that idiom. So Jesus doesn't mean here that we literally are going to eat his body and drink his blood. But I want you to look in this teaching on what happens to those who eat his flesh. So four times in verses 54 through 58, Jesus says, whoever feeds on, see on verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh. Then in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh. And then in verse 50, I'm missing one of them. In verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread. And there is one that says, whoever feeds on me. And I have lost it. Um, oh yeah, sorry, end of verse 57. Whoever feeds on me. So four times he says, whoever feeds on two times my flesh, one times me, one time this bread. And then you see the effects. If you go back to verse 54, has eternal life. Verse 56, abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, he also will live because of me. And then verse 58, will live forever. So I think we need to ask, answer, what does it mean to feed on Jesus' body and drink his blood? Because he's saying this is the way to eternal life. So this, this question, this answer can't be foggy in our minds. We need clarity. So Jesus is using a metaphor here to communicate what he said literally in verse 40. So, so grateful for good study tools, good commentaries. So I want you to see in this verse, as he put them side by side, how Jesus is saying the same thing in terms of the effects as we look at verse 40 and we look at verse 54. So in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then when you go to verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's leave that up there for a minute. You see that the result, the effect is the same. Whoever does this has eternal life, and Jesus will raise up on the last day. Well, who is it then? Well, in verse 40, it's he who looks on the Son and believes. And then in verse 54, it's whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. So here's the thing. To feed on Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood is metaphorically saying what is literally said in verse 40. It is to look on Jesus and believe. Why would Jesus use the metaphor then? It is a very memorable way to show we must fully and personally believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God. Sinless Jesus had to take all God's wrath against our sin for us to receive eternal life. And so for us to feed on His flesh, to drink His blood is to be all in with God's plan. To fully embrace the cross as God's work. It, 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 as the way we're saved. The, the sole way we're saved. We, we understand this. In our family, we've, we've watched uh, the reality show Survivor before. At least Matt and I have. And if you know Survivor, these people are hungry. When they get a reward meal, they don't 
They don't nibble. They, they don't pick at it. They don't ask people to remove the crust, right? They're starving and they gulp down this food. So I think Jesus turns to this type of metaphor, eating his body, drinking his blood, to show we're fully embracing the cross as wonderful. We don't run from the cross in shame. We run to it as glorious. So to eat is to fully internalize. And I think Jesus wants to show there's, there's just no middle ground. In fact, it can't just be an aloof, distant type of recognition that that was a nice thing Jesus did and then not, not eat, not fully trust. And we can't just begrudgingly agree mentally that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way to pay for sin. So it's not this standing at a distance, just intellectually admitting that's right. It means, it means eating. It means loving. It means being amazed. The fact that Jesus would do that for sinners like me. And the more Jesus in his grace grows me in Christ, the more aware I am of my sin and how horrific it is and how desperate I am for Jesus. And what an amazing thing that Jesus saved me. We should treasure Jesus, not tolerate Jesus. All right, so Jesus lays it out for them, right? Now, how will this audience react to Jesus' teaching that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, we, we see they, they responded first. They argued. They disputed. And then secondly... They're scandalized. They're offended. In verse 60, some of these folks say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, when, he, when they say it's a hard saying, they don't mean it's hard to understand. They mean this sounds harsh and it is hard to accept it. So Jesus comes back to them and he asks them, do you take offense at this? Now that word take offense in the Greek has at its root our word scandalize. In other words, he's asking them, are you scandalized by this kind of talk of the cross? In other words, has the message of a crucified Messiah scandalized you so much that you stopped believing? Now, what does this crowd come looking for? They came looking for a king. They came looking for a military conqueror. They came looking for a political ruler. They did not come looking for a Messiah who was going to die. That kind of talk, they will not abide. To them, a dying Messiah was a contradiction in terms so they're scandalized by the cross because it sounds so counterintuitive to their idea of what a savior should be this messiah is to reign in power he is not to die on a cross we have graffiti today that didn't start with spray paint cans there was graffiti in the ancient world and there was a piece of graffiti in the roman empire that showed what some people thought of a crucified Messiah. 
The drawing is of a worshiper looking up to Jesus on the cross. But in the place of Jesus' head is the head of a donkey. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. And you can tell they just think it's not just absurd, they're scandalized by that. To the natural mind, it looks so foolish to worship a crucified Savior. To the Roman mind that's filled with power, notions of power, the cross sounds like failure. Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And there are many for whom that is still true. It seems like a stumbling block. It seems like folly. So how would Jesus respond to them being scandalized? Do you take offense at this? Are you scandalized by this to the point you're going to stop believing? Then he says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man descending to where he was before? Now, on the surface, that's confusing. I think it's hard to tell just on the surface what Jesus means by that. He moves from the scandal of the cross to the Son of Man ascending. Now, it may look like Jesus is saying, if you're offended that I'm teaching you to believe in my substitutionary sacrificial death for you, just wait till you see me ascend. Then you're really going to be offended. But just in terms of the context, that doesn't make sense. And just in terms of ascension, if they saw him ascend back to heaven, wouldn't that overcome their wrong thoughts about him and cause them to see that he really is God in the flesh? So I don't think his ascension would scandalize them. It would convince them that he really is who he says he is. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus used the word ascended before in John's gospel. When he spoke in chapter 3 with a very confused Nicodemus, he said in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So the Son of Man will ascend, but the one who came from heaven, who will go back from heaven, came down to do something. And that's in the next two verses. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, so the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. What are they believing? They're believing the Son of Man lifted up. That means crucified on the cross. So now when we come back, what does Jesus mean by ascension here? Here's what I think the answer is. He's not, in chapter 6, he's not breaking down all the redemptive acts into their different stages. He's taking it all as one big piece. So his ascension is the final step that begins with his crucifixion. His crucifixion is the first step to his eventual ascension. So it's all of the salvation event Jesus won for us right there in one 
big piece. So when he come back to John 6 and verse 63, for Jesus to ascend where he was before is not to bypass the cross. It's to be lifted up on it. So I think what he is saying to us here is, if you're scandalized just by my talk of eating my flesh and drinking my blood, how much more so are you going to be offended when you see me on that cross? When you see me lifted up, when you see crown of thorns in my head, you see the spikes through my wrists and feet, you see my body torn apart by a cat of nine tails. If you're just scandalized by me talking about this, what about when you see it happen? But through it all, Jesus will still go to the cross. So I am inviting us to never be scandalized by the cross, but for us to glory in the cross. Here's what Jeremy Treat says. Herein lies the paradox of the gospel. The self-giving love of God transformed an instrument of death into an instrument of life. The cross is the great reversal where exaltation comes through humiliation. Glory is revealed in shame. Victory is accomplished through surrender. And the triumph of the kingdom comes through the suffering of the servant. So church, what should we, what should we do with Jesus' teaching here. Teaching that caused some people to leave. And here's what I think we as a church and what we as individuals must do. We must reject a cross-less supposed version of Christianity. It is not genuine Christianity where the cross is absent. We must reject a cross less Christianity we live in we live in such a sanitized culture we don't like germs we like clean we certainly don't love the sight of blood and for decades churches have been removing blood from our message today we have sung about blood we have read about blood we have preached about blood. And for many in our daily culture, that is not a pleasant topic to their sanitized ears. In the middle of the last century, Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored a church in Philadelphia and his sermons were broadcast on CBS radio. So he had a really wide audience. And he laid out the scenario of Satan taking over the city of Philadelphia and what that might look like. And what he laid out is going to be surprising to your ears. He said all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And people would be so nice to each other as they passed on the street. Nobody would swear. People, uh, kids would be respectful. You'd hear, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And he said that in a city overtaken by Satan, churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. That's what it came down 
for Barnhouse. Satan would be thrilled with a respectful society with churches filled so long as they're not preaching Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And you say, well, that, that sounds so odd. But we understand there is an itching ears gospel today that is widely accepted. There is a self-help, self-maintenance type gospel that people are fine with, that people are good showing up to church, give us something to feel good about in ourselves, pat us on the back, tell us we can fix our problem, and we'll leave, and we'll be happy, and we'll go eat lunch, and it will be so great. People will leave feeling good about themselves and never realize their sin is a huge problem and there is one cure and that is the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And it's so easy to slip into that and we must reject it. Now Jesus goes on. He says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what must we also do? We must also reject the idea that we can do anything in ourselves to save ourselves. The flesh is no help at all. The self-help gospel is no gospel. Gospel means good news. That is not good news. You are enough, says the culture. And the gospel says you are not enough the gospel says your flesh is not okay your heart is not good the culture says you got a great heart you're a wonderful person you're fine in and of yourself i spoke with one of our senior ladies after bible study on wednesday night and she, and she and i were talking she told me she came to jesus at the age of 31 but it's not because that's the first time she entered a church. She had grown up a lifelong church attender. She'd been in church her whole life. But the church she attended was a mainline liberal church where the gospel was not preached. She said one of the last sermons she heard preached there was not from the Bible, but from a poem. From the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. That poem ends with these words. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem is an anthem to human ability. That poem is an anthem to the fact or to the proclamation that your flesh is all you need. You see that in those two lines. I can determine my fate. I am in charge of my soul. In fact, the title Invictus is the Latin word for unconquerable. That poem screams, you are enough. And that is the poem that was preached in what was supposedly a Christian church. The cross, that old rugged cross we sang about this morning, screams, Jeremy, you are not enough. 
Jeremy, if you are not conquered by the cross, you are going to be conquered in judgment and hell for all eternity. The cross screams, we need Jesus to go there, bear our sin, pay our debt, rise again, exalt to heaven, and to return. And church, that's what Jesus did and what Jesus will do in his return. We have an entire society telling people that their flesh is all they need. I am telling you what we need is the message of a crucified and living Savior. We need the message of the cross. So I invite you today, we're going to sing. We're going to sing about the wonderful cross. One event in human history changed it from the agonizing cross to the wonderful cross, the death of our Savior and his resurrection. Consider again the wonder and the wonderful cross. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus paid it all. We thank you for that old rugged cross. It might seem like insanity to our world that we have sung so much about blood and eating Jesus' flesh, drinking his blood, but really it is about believing, believing in the one way that we sinners can be spared the wrath of God and be reconciled to you. And that is through the glorious work of Jesus on that old rugged cross. Lord, I pray for my people to treasure what Jesus did on the cross. That they wouldn't give a glance to it just on Easter Sunday, but daily they would live their lives in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. And glory in it, exult in it, rejoice in it, and put no hope in their own flesh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.